Amen. Why don't you guys take a seat and grab a Bible? Uh, if you have a Bible, meet me over in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. You know, Acts chapter 5 is uh, a passage, a scripture in the Bible that you don't see taught very often because it is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. Uh, the story is going to be about two people, Ananias and Sapphira, and what's going to happen is they are going to offer the church something and lie and drop dead. Uh, that's not really popular to talk about a whole lot. However, at City Church, we are pretty committed to teaching through verse by verse through the Bible. Um, we take books of the Bible and we walk through them, and this is where we are, and I believe that God has something good for us. By the way, for some of you, as you continually pray for miracles, just know that this was one of the first miracles in the church. So uh, addition by subtraction sometimes, uh, you might want to be careful what you pray for. Um, hey, if I'm honest with you, I wanted to skip this. This, this was one of those moments as I'm writing, uh, thinking, man, should we, just, should we just move on from here? But we don't. We don't. And I do think that God's got something in this word for us. All right. So we're going to dive into it. Just so you know, I have an unusually traumatic fear of three things in life. All right, so if you ever want to get me, here they are. Snakes, cats, and heights. The first two are pretty obvious because Satan was a snake or a cat incarnate, and they just make sense. But heights, heights, like I have an irrational fear of heights, so much so that I don't go up on top of things. Well, last year I was in Israel and um, we went down to the southern part of Israel near the Dead Sea, and there's a place called Masada. It's totally worth checking out. If you've never heard of it, Herod had a, had a, uh, a kingdom up on top of a thousand-foot plateau overlooking the Dead Sea. Well, we get there, and apparently we're going to go to the top. And there's a gondola that you have to take a thousand-foot ascent in, and I'm telling you, uh, I did not want to do it, but at the same time, I'm like, I didn't come all the way to Israel to sit down here while everybody else goes up. So I get inside of this gondola, and I'm standing in the middle of it, and I am shaking. Like, I don't know if I'm going to pass out or not, and we're going up to the top. We get to the top. We get off of the platform, and there is a railing of wood planks that you have to go around the side of in order to get to the top of the plateau, and each one of these little wood planks, you can see a thousand feet underneath you on every step. And Jim thought I was joking, but I literally could not move. I was paralyzed by fear. Y'all, everything in me logically would tell you that there's nothing to worry about, right? These things are tested. They're safe. Millions of people go up in them. Uh, it never rains in the desert except for the day that we were there. I kid you not. They're like, oh my gosh, we got to get down before flash floods and the thing, you know, that would be my luck. Fear though is a natural reaction from your body to protect you. Psychologists will tell you that it's an important that we experience fear because, because fear is an emotion that tells your body um, that, that you need to think rationally about before doing something. Fear helps you to slow down and to think clearly about your decisions. Like in that moment, I didn't haphazardly walk up on this gondola. No, I, I intentionally went through every single scenario of what could happen, and then I thought through probabilities before I took a step onto this gondola. It wasn't impulsive or reactionary. It was intentional, and I had to force my body to go through it. You see, fear, fear can either be paralyzing or it can be a gift. And th those emotions are really important. 
What you're going to see today is that God uses this extreme example of Ananias and Sapphira to put fear into our church in order to help us to think deeply and rationally about the decisions that we make before we make them and to protect the body of the church from experiencing something that will ultimately harm it. With that in mind, let's just read the passage, and I want to make some observations along the way. Here's what it says. But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself parts of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. By the way, these were like the first interns in the church. Could you imagine? Hey, here's your job. Take that guy and get rid of him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Y'all, this is a wild story. Ananias and Sapphira, are, they come in, and, and, and the entire narrative is there to show you that, that there's, it's not just about being generous. If you actually notice the story, they're pretty generous. They sell a field, they come in, they put it at their feet. There's something deeper going on here. You see, they, they didn't just sell it. They publicly donated the proceeds to the church, and they lied about the amount, and it's going to show you, it's going to show you something really, really, really important. On the outside, religious people and gospel-centered people tend to look pretty identical. They tend to do a lot of the same things. There's something about the heart that matters. Now, in order to understand what's really going on here, you need to rewind the tape a little bit. You remember last week we talked about how Peter and John had, par- had healed a paralyzed man. They stood before the council of the Sanhedrin and, and the same people that had killed Jesus had looked at them and told them, hey, you need to stop preaching. And what do they do? They're like, listen, I don't know about you. You can go kick rocks, but God told us to keep doing this. We're going to keep doing it. So then they go back and they have a worship and prayer service with the church. Well, what ends up happening through that worship and prayer service is they pray that God would give them more boldness to keep preaching, and it says that the Spirit of God was poured out on them, and not only did they keep preaching, but something happened with their generosity. They started caring for one another. Matter of fact, you get this example in verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many who were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds that um, that was sold. And they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, 
sold a field belonging to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. What you got to see here is that that there's supposed to be an archetypal example of what godly people look like in Barnabas and what religious people look like in Ananias Sapphira. The writer Luke is trying to make a point here. There's a major difference between generosity and religion, and they have devastating consequences. Let me give you four signs of religion and four signs of generosity and show you the difference between the two. Here's number one. Generosity is sparked by an encounter with the Holy Spirit. See, when the Spirit of God came down on the church, they preached the Word of God with boldness and they shared their possessions with grace. This is what always happens in the church. When God's Spirit gets a hold of people, they, they start talking about Jesus and then they start caring for one another. Like, When you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, it just does something to you. It knits your heart to God, and it takes your heart away from the things of this world. What they encountered was that God was living inside of him, and that put things into perspective, and it loosened their grips on the things of this world. I'm telling you, if Jesus literally put on flesh, lived our life, died our death, and then when he ascended into heaven, he came to live inside of us, it does something to you if you really believe that. Now, here's what's really, really important. And this, you got to understand this. According to this passage, everybody is controlled by something. Matter of fact, the Bible talks about real freedom as being a slave to Christ. You're either a slave to Christ or you're a slave to sin. What you see is Barnabas was controlled by love and generosity because he, he gave himself to the gospel. He gave himself to Jesus. What you see about Ananias and Sapphira is that their religion was controlled by demonic forces. Here, here's the, here it is. The first, sign, the first sign of a religion is being controlled by Satan. The first sign of religion is being controlled by Satan. Did you notice it in verse 3? But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself parts of the proceeds? The writer Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, wants you to know that you can either be spirit-filled or Satan-filled. You are either going to be controlled by love that leads to generosity, or you're going to be controlled by Satan that leads to religion. See, the number one indicator of what controls your life is not what you do, it's the motives behind why you do it. Here's something I've learned, and it's a really, really important takeaway from this scripture. You write this down. In the church, there are two kinds of people, and it is nearly impossible to distinguish them from the outside. They both look the same. Oftentimes, they show up, they give, they serve. Some of them find themselves in leadership and then on church staffs, but the difference between those who are like Ananias and Sapphira and those who are like Barnabas tends to not be with what they do, but with why they do it. On the outside, they all look exactly the same. And if you read carefully, what you'll notice is that both Ananias and Barnabas sell their field to the church, but they don't do it for the same reasons. Barnabas gave out an overflow of his experience with the Spirit of God in his life. As God filled his heart, he became a generous person. Barnabas trusted God, and he understood that everything that he had belonged to God, and he wanted to give gifts to the church. Ananias and Sapphira, they gave out of religious compulsion that that was dictated by watching a church that was filled with generosity, and they felt like they had to be a part of that. How do you know that? Well, Peter, Peter asked them two questions. 
He asked them, hey, while the property remained unsold, he said, did it not remain your own? In other words, Peter's saying, Ananias, Sapphira, that's your property. It, it was your blessing. You could have did anything you wanted with it. Like, you didn't have to give this to the church. Second question he asked them, after the property was sold, was it not at your disposal? Again, after the property was sold, it was still yours, he says. That was a blessing from the Lord. You did not have to give anything to the church. Your religious compulsion was built on your assumptions, not on the Bible's mandate. See, what became a problem was not that they wanted to give or that they sold something. What became a problem was when they laid it at the apostles' feet. In other words, this was their public, their public announcement of what they were doing. When they laid it at the, the apostles' feet, they were making a statement. They were basically saying, look at me. They were using God to look good. Now, this is the definition of hypocrisy. What you're going to see in this passage is that the one thing that God cared about more than anything was their hypocrisy. It was dangerous. God loved the church far too much, far too much, to make the church a means to an end for your good looks. You know, there is nothing more dangerous in the South than cultural Christianity, where it all looks good on the outside, where everybody's giving and serving, and you really can't tell the difference between who's in and who's out. Let me just tell you this. Going to church, giving and serving doesn't make you a Christian any more than sticking your head in the oven makes you a biscuit. It doesn't make you a Christian. I don't really care that you have good theology, you have good morals, and you speak Christianese. That doesn't make you a Christian either. And here's something that might be even more dangerous than any of that. And it's, it's the religious part that doesn't make you conform to God's image, but it tries to make God conform to your image. If you read carefully, what you're going to see is Ananias and Sapphira, they actually give. And a lot of people would say that they are being generous. But as if God needed their money. It wasn't about their giving. The question wasn't about generosity. The question was, why are they holding back? Why are they holding back? And if you understand what's happening here, God's looking at them and he's looking at Barnabas and he's saying, why aren't you willing to totally surrender to me? It's almost like we do the same thing. God, you can have all of me, but you can't have this. <laughs> right? I got my little thing over here. That's what's going on. For some of you, for some of you, you've had this conversation with God. God, I'm all in, but I'm really not. So what's that thing? Is it your relationships? God, I want to serve you. But honestly, it's more pragmatic that we live together before we're married because our bills, and you know, it just makes sense, and it's 2024, so what's the big deal? Is it your finances? God, if I have anything left over, you can have it. And honestly, it looks pretty generous. Is it your time? Like, I'll show up when it's convenient. See, for all of us, or for most of us, we, we subconsciously can contrive in our hearts that, God, you can have most of me, but you can't have all of me, and you wonder why you're not experiencing God's grace. By the way, that's exactly what the Bible means by taking the Lord's name in vain. I've explained this to you before. It, it's not about saying GD. It's about saying or taking God's name, calling yourself a Christian, and acting like you're not. It'd be like the, the moment that Allison and I got married, if we stood on the altar and the pastor looked at us and he said, I now pronounce to you for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs. William Lowe, and then she walks out, goes to the club, and acts like she's not married to me. She would have taken my name in vain. 
When God looks at you, he's saying, why are you taking my name in vain? Why are you telling people that you are with me, but you're really not? See, when the early church was getting started, they wanted to, or God wanted to set the precedent that he doesn't compare, or he doesn't care about religious compulsion. He cares about a generous heart. Don't you get that God doesn't want generosity from you? He wants it for you, as if God needed anything. Write this down. Ownership leads to greed. Stewardship leads to generosity. When you think it's all yours, you end up being greedy with it. When you understand that it's all God's, you end up giving away and trusting him with the rest. Number two, generosity is fueled by mission. Religion is fueled by compulsion. Barnabas, if you remember, they prayed this bold prayer. Barnabas was captivated. He was captivated by the mission of preaching the gospel to the nations. I I told this to our servant team earlier, that the church is not made for the mission of God. I'm sorry, the the mission of God is not made for the church. The, the, The church is made for the mission. God's got a mission to build his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And when we give ourselves collectively to this thing, God tends to do something quite incredible through us. Ananias and Sapphira were controlled by religion. I love the way John Piper said it. Here's what he says. Christianity is not a matter of external constraints. It's a matter of internal freedom. Ananias and Sapphira felt pressure to conform that wasn't there. As a matter of fact, Jesus did away with that, didn't he? Like all these religious rituals, the book of Hebrews says when he came, he gave the ultimate sacrifice so that you would not have to continually come and sacrifice to earn his approval. Some of you still feel like there's obligations to earn God's favor, and you're falling into the same trap that they did. You don't have to earn God's favor, because Jesus already did it for you. And because he did it for you, you need to realize that you are fully loved and fully accepted by God. When you fall into the religious compulsion trap, you will never feel like you are good enough. You will continually have to do more and more, and all it will do is lead you into deeper and deeper bondage. This is why some of you still feel like you're not good enough. And every time you mess up, you feel like God's going to reject you. I would just tell you, if you feel that way, you don't understand the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has already done everything necessary to save you. It's that Jesus died for you while you were yet sinners. And because of that, you can relinquish the rights to your life and he will fill you up and give you a new one. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is all about. For our sake, for our sake. He, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's what he's saying. In Christ, you already are righteous. That means that you are fully loved and fully known. And when you get that, you give out of an overflow of love that fuels the mission of God. Y'all, what would it look like if every single one of us took a step back and we recognize just how blessed we are and how much God does not need us. Do you know how freeing it is to know that the one who spoke galaxies into existence can do anything he wants and what he wanted to do more than anything was to use us to build his kingdom? Why? Why would God do that? Because there is joy that comes when we get to assist the master in his building project. God has invited us into this thing. Like when you get the gospel, you find joy, and you find this joy in joining God. When you you understand that you don't have to earn his love, 
to get him, but you already have him. Your end doesn't become yourself. Your end becomes God, his love. And the essence of religious compulsion is using God as a means to an end, and that always leads to lying and deceit. Here's number three. Generosity creates unity. Lying creates disunity. Barnabas, if you remember, he gave up an overflow of his love. And the Bible actually says that because they had one heart and one soul. Now, I've told you this before. Unity and uniformity are not the same thing. God's not after uniformity. He's not after sameness. He's after oneness. Matter of fact, there's something absolutely beautiful whenever people from different tribes, tongues, and nations who have nothing in common are knit together around the gospel and they give out of that. When you get this, when you're compelled by love, you put we before me. When you're not and you're compelled by religion, you always put me before we. Look at what Peter said to them. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Who is behind this? Satan. By the way, take note of this. This is the very first post-resurrection sighting of Satan in the Bible. And this is massively important. Satan understood that he could not take down Jesus. So his new tactic is to take down his church. Y'all, it's the same thing he does today. Disunity in his church through his people is Satan's tactic. See, if you are not aware of this, you will turn against each other. And it happens all the time over the pettiest stuff. But what you're not aware of is that this is exactly what Satan wants to do. Because listen, if he can get you to turn against each other, he can destroy the church and God's kingdom is vastly prohibited from moving forward. Now, God will build his church. But I think you need to understand, Satan tried and failed at killing Christ. So now he's going to try to kill his church. Verse four, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. By the way, did you notice that Peter, Peter told them that they lied to the Holy Spirit and that they lied to God? Here's what you need to know is the Holy Spirit is not just some ambiguous force. The Holy Spirit is God. He's the third person of the Trinity and lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God. Peter though is addressing their motives. He's, he said, you've contrived this in your heart. It wasn't an accident. It, wasn't, it was intentional, an intentional act. They weren't lying to the church. They were lying to Christ's bride. They were lying to God. You know, when you are controlled by selfish motives, the only person that benefits is you. Think about how destructive a church filled with people of selfish motives are. They only serve where it benefits them. They only care about things that make them be seen. So they're never going to do the secret things that nobody else sees because the private things don't contribute to the public persona. And the thing that's at stake here is the reputation of the church, and God takes that seriously. Here's number four. Generosity is about trusting God where, religious, where religion is about earning God. There's nothing worse than someone trying to manipulate you into liking them. 
See, when Barnabas sold his property and he laid it at the apostles' feet, he was making the same public statement, but he was saying something completely different. He was saying, all that I have is yours, church, and I trust you with it. Everything in chapter 5 indicates that Ananias and Sapphira were operating out of something other than trust. How do you know that? Look at verse 2. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Verse 8, it seems to be that Sapphira had the opportunity to do the right thing, and she doesn't. We need to talk about that for a second. Wives, let me just tell you. The Bible is clear that you should follow your husband's lead, but never into sin. Like, sometimes you might make a mistake and do something different. That's not what's going on here. And this, this, you have to understand, would have been vast, just incredibly difficult for Sapphira. She's standing in front of the church, and she's got to throw her husband under the bus. That's hard. Like, I, I want you to have a little bit of grace on her. And yet, and yet, her relationship with Jesus is her own. God never calls you to follow your husband into sin. At that point, she's got to do the right thing. I mean, there's a warning for you here, too. Here's the warning. Your sin never just stops with you. You understand what I'm saying? Like the decisions that you make have a ripple effect. That, that affair that you think is not going to hurt anybody but you, let me just tell you it is. It's going to ruin the way that your kids think about you, maybe even the way that your daughters view men and husbands for the rest of their lives. Don't get it twisted. The things that you do in your life have impacts through concentric circles that ripple out far beyond what you think. You know, I think about this all the time. I think about if I have a public sin, what it would do to my family. What did it do to my daughters? What did it do to our church? Some of you, some of you would look at that and it would actually warp the way that you view your relationship with the church and the way you view your relationship with Jesus. You'd be like, you see, I told you they're all the same. You know, the decisions that we make, whether they're little ones or not, they have a massive impact. Don't you understand that? There's too much at stake for you to act like little sins aren't a big deal. By the way, that's why the why in the Christian life matters just as much as the what. Y'all, I want to be super gentle here, but let me just say this. God does not need your time, your talents, or your money. You understand that? It's not about getting things from you. It's about trust. Oftentimes, it's about our surrender. Because I think that most of us sit here like this all the time. And I'm just telling you, God cannot bless closed hands. And oftentimes he's just saying, would you just open it up and trust me? And as you do, what you would find is that God is inviting you into a relationship that's built on the foundation of trust. See, and when you move into this deeper level of intimacy with the Father, it is so freeing because you understand that God takes care of his children. Like I'm telling you, Jesus has already proved his love for you by the cross, and he's proven his power over everything in this world by the resurrection. If he can do what he did, you can trust him. Write this down. What this contrast is supposed to do is set up a healthy fear in your life against living out of religious compulsion, because that stuff only kills your intimacy with Jesus, and it kills the unity and the love of the church. It's why two times... Luke stresses that fear came over them all. Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. 
Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. That word fear is the Greek word phobos, where we get the word phobia from. It it, it literally means fear, but it also means respect or awe or terror or, or reverence. There's something about having a healthy level of reverence for the holiness of God that that should keep you walking with him, not in dread, but in awe. Matter of fact, here's a good definition of fear. Fear is awe mixed with intimacy. When you have awe for the glory of God mixed with an intimacy of relationship with God, it causes you to have great fear. So here's the idea. God did this to show the church that they needed to be fearful of hypocrisy. Y'all, his divine judgment was because he loved you far too much not to warn you. Like I've told you before, maybe my favorite Martin Luther King Jr. quote of all time is the only thing worse than hate is indifference. You get that, right? If my children walked up to me and they were like, I want to go try meth, and I'm like, that sounds like a good idea. I don't care. Whatever you want. That's worse than hate. That's indifference. If God didn't care at all what you did, it would be worse than hate. God loves you far too much not to care. See, God's not indifferent about his people, and God's not indifferent about his church. God is jealous for his church, and listen, it's not okay It's not okay whenever people take advantage of it. Now, here's where things get difficult. We need to have a conversation about this. This is what most people don't want to talk about whenever they look at this passage, and this is God's divine holiness and judgment. The example here happens at the inception of the church because God wants you to know that he takes his church seriously. See, and the church is supposed to be a place of honesty. It's supposed to be a place of, of a place where people who need healing can come in, not a place of perfection and pretense. You know, this is a big deal. God doesn't say come perfect. He says come as you are. He actually says take off your mask. And if you didn't know that, that's what the word hypocrisy means. It, it, was, it, was, a, uh, it was a word that was used for whenever they did plays back in antiquity where they would literally take off the mask, put on a different one to play different characters. He's saying take off the mask and come into this place. Don't wear your Monday through Thursday mask, your, your mask at the ballpark, and then show up at the church on Sunday and wear a different one. Paul would say it like this in Romans 12, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. That word genuine means without hypocrisy. It's the same thing. God's church isn't supposed to be a place where everything looks perfect on the outside. It's supposed to be a place where imperfect people can come and find hope and peace. Isn't that what Jesus said in Mark 2? And when Jesus heard it, he turned to them and he said, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. I need you to hear the warning. If your fake hypocrisy is keeping people from getting to Jesus, that's a problem. I'm convinced that there isn't a more destructive force on the planet than religiously motivated, ungraceful, image-driven churches. Whether it be health and wealth, prosperity gospel, or everything looks perfect in here while my marriage is falling apart out there. That kind of place is a cancer that hurts people. The church is meant to be a place of refuge. And here's the truth. God is saying, don't make a mockery of my church. 
that my church is my kingdom on earth as it is in heaven here to build so that people can live for a better kingdom. It's his bride. And if you mess with his bride, you mess with him. Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, but that still seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? I want to I give you a couple things. Here's number one. You shouldn't be upset at God's swift judgment. You should be surprised by his long suffering. R.C. Sproul, he said it like this. God is intended, God is indeed long-suffering, patient, and slow to anger. In fact, he is so slow to anger that when his anger does erupt, we are shocked and offended by it. We forget rather quickly that God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance, to give us time to be redeemed. Instead of taking advantage of this patience by coming humbly to him for forgiveness, we use this grace as an opportunity to become more bold in our sin. We dilute ourselves into thinking that either God doesn't care about it or that he is powerless to punish us. The supreme folly is that we think we will get away with our revolt. You see, when you read this, if you get the gospel, instead of wondering why God has swift judgment, you should flip the script and wonder why God doesn't do this all the time. The problem is, is that too many of us don't take sin seriously enough. And we don't do that because we serve a gracious God. See, one of the things that I'm becoming more and more aware of is the fact that I can't hide from God. You ever find it fascinating that after Adam and Eve sin in the garden, God looks at them and says, hey, Adam, where are you? It's not like he didn't know. Adam, where are you? It was actually an invitation to intimacy. You see it in the life of Jacob. Jacob, what is your name? Right? You see it all over the scriptures. The woman at the well, hey, where's your husband? He's not here. I know because you don't have one. You had five. It's continually this exposure because God actually wants to bring reconciliation into your life. But what you need to know is that sin will always try to convince you to hide. But it's impossible. All it does is damage the relationship. You might be able to fool everybody in the world what's going on deep down inside of you, but you can't hide from God. You need to be honest with yourself. You shouldn't be surprised by stories like this. You should be surprised that God is as gracious as he is. Now with that, what do we do with this warning? You need to expose your sins. Write this down. If you expose your sin, Jesus will cover you with his grace. If you cover your sin, he will expose you with his wrath. You see, the difference between those who experience grace and those who experience judgment, listen to this, this is really important, it's not sin. The difference between, let me say that again, those who experience grace and those who experience judgment is not sin. It's grace. And Jesus wants to offer you that. It's, here's the offer. His absolute love for your total surrender. You hear what I'm saying? It was not sin that was fatal. I I need you to hear me say this. It was not sin that was fatal. It was covering that was fatal. All of us sin and fall short of the glory of God, according to Paul. It's not sin that kills you. It's your covering of the sin. Your sin has been atoned for. Jesus has already lived your perfect life. He's already died your death. He already rose from the dead. He's already lived your substitutionary atonement. All you have to do is expose it and receive. 
The thing that keeps us from him is our covering. Peter told Ananias and Sapphira that they had been filled by Satan. Do you know who else had heard those words? Peter. You remember it? Jesus tells him, you're going to deny me three times and Satan wants to take you from me. Do you know what the difference between Peter and them is? Not sin. It was exposure. Repentance. See, that's a big deal. If you will confess, he is faithful and just to forgive, according to 1 John. The problem with Ananias and Sapphira was their covering. One of the things I love about when Adam and Eve sin, Martin Luther called this the proto-first, euangelion gospel. As soon as God says, hey, Adam, where are you? What does he do? Kills an animal, clothes their nakedness. They expose themselves and God covered them. It's the same picture of the gospel over and over and over again. If you expose your sins, he will cover you. If you cover your sins, he will expose you. That's the warning. Let me give you number two. You need to remember that life is eternal. Now, I don't know the state of Ananias and Sapphira's heart or their salvation, but I do know that they were a part of the church and that you are not defined by your worst moment. I don't want you to just make the assumption that Ananias and Sapphira died and went to hell. We don't know that. The Bible never says that. What I do know is that every single person in this room will die with some unconfessed sins probably. Whether you die at 90 sitting on the couch watching a Braves game at 30 in a car accident, you're not defined by your worst moments. And the moment that Ananias and Sapphira died and stood before God, you know what he did not ask them? He did not ask them, hey, why did you lie to me? You know what he did ask them? Hey, what did you do with my son? You know, it's the same exact question you're going to be asked, same exact question I'm going to be asked. The question that God asks you is this when you stand before him is, do you believe that Jesus has done everything necessary to save me? That's it. It, it is the most scandalous, beautiful offer ever. His life for your absolute surrender. Just so you know, I'm one that actually believes that in and Sapphira are, are believers. Because there's a play on words here in Hebrew that you actually can't see in English. Ananias' name in Hebrew actually means God is merciful. I think God is trying to give you a little sprinkle there to say, hey, listen, they, they messed up royally, but life is eternal. And I'm just telling you, if you could live in light of eternity, even the worst things on this earth, don't compare to the glory and the joy that you're going to experience in heaven. You can receive God's love now because Jesus received your judgment in your place. Or or you can receive God's judgment later because you didn't receive his love now. The gospel is the greatest deal ever. God's love for your absolute surrender. And listen, coming to church and walking through religious rituals isn't going to do it. You realize that, right? Did you know? This might blow your mind. Judas listened to every single one of Jesus' sermons. Every single one of them. He was there for every miracle. It wasn't his religious conformity that saves you. It's your absolute surrender to the glory and worship of Jesus. (laughs) 
These are tough passages. But I just believe, I believe that God's got something in these things for you. The question for all of us is, it's the same question if you remember when we went through John 21. Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Barnabas loved Jesus. Ananias and Sapphira loved themselves. Listen to this. When the bond of faith is created with Christ, the bond of love is created with his people. I think that there's a warning for all of us. Here it is. Check your heart. That's the warning. Check your heart. If you take a step back and you see the forest through the trees of the book of Acts, the whole point is that God is building his church. Do you know why Acts 28 ends on a cliffhanger? If you go read the book of Acts, you're like, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not how you end the story. You know why it ends that way? Because God's not done. God is still building his church, and he's using you to do it. Like, he is still building his church, and when God's spirit comes on the church, the church triumphs. Listen to me. It triumphs over rulers and authorities. It triumphs over physical problems. And this is really important. It also triumphs over all powers, including internal deception. And God is trying to make you into a certain kind of person. I think that that's the crux of it. Before God can do something through you, he wants to do a great work in you. He wants to make you a certain kind of people. He's not, he's not trying to make you better versions of your old self. He's trying to make you a completely new kind of person living in a completely different kind of community. A community that checks its pretense at the door. A community that, that is fully exposed and leaves completely changed. Have you ever gotten a splinter in your fingers? You know how bad that stuff hurts? The other day... Uh, I was walking through my kitchen, and I don't know how, but I, I kicked a piece of glass into my toe. And man, that little piece of glass on these wheels, it put me out for like three days. You know what I wanted to do? I, I, started, I started trying to get it out with some tweezers, you know, and it hurt so bad that I'm just like, I'm, nope, I'm going to leave it in there. You know what would happen if I left it in there? It gets infected. And that little tiny thing that gets infected in there, it actually does massive destruction when left alone. So like always, my wife, who's much tougher than me, she's like, give me the tweezers, right? Pulls it out. And she's digging in there. And it's hurting. She's like, suck it up, buttercup. Like, I delivered four babies. I can get this thing out of here and you can shut up. (laughs) Y'all laughing because that's a true story. That's what God does. We dig around in our sins a little bit and hurts. So we just leave it alone because we don't think it's a big deal. And those little things left unchecked get infected. It turns into bigger things. You know, I, I never met a person who had an affair that started out with the affair. Never met somebody who's like, man, I was just walking, I tripped into it, and I don't know how it happened. Never starts that way. Starts with a little look, friendly text, maybe a drink at a hotel. I don't know. Little things left unchecked become big things. So God starts rooting around in there. He's digging deeper, and it hurts. 
And your first thing you want to do is be like, get off of me. Just leave it. It's not going to hurt anything. And God's like, no, I love you far too much to just leave it alone. Because if I just leave it alone, it's going to kill you. And I don't want that to happen. So he takes it. And the gospel is rooting in there deeply. Here's what I want to tell you. Don't tell him to stop. Let him dig. Because what will end up happening if you let him do that is God's love will actually change you for the best. It's God's love that won't leave you alone. Y'all, it's God's love that leads to repentance. It's God's love that grows his church. And I'm just telling you, some of you are like, okay, but if that happened and it really happened, nobody's coming back. Verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. The church in America in 2024 has hit the greatest decline in church attendance and engagement in the last 200 years. You know why? Because we've just left the splinters alone. Because we don't care enough to dig into each other's lives. Because the people in here, metaphorically speaking, look no different than the people out there. We've compartmentalized our faith because we believe the lie that living in authentic, genuine community is going to turn people off. We're going to be too whatever, too radical, too this, too that. No, it's the aroma of Christ that is attractive to a world that can't find joy, love, and peace anywhere. They're divided over everything. There's more sin and racism and and problems in the world and everybody's looking for solutions and it's in this room. If we would just dig into it. I think, I think we live in at the precipice of one of the greatest moves of God if we would believe that God's love and holiness actually leads to his presence, grace, and change in this world. He doesn't do it because he hates us. He does it because he loves us. Gospel. Jesus lived your perfect life, died your death, rose from the dead to unite you to yourself. There's nothing you could ever do to make him love you anymore. Nothing you've ever done to make him love you any less because it's not dependent upon what you do. It's dependent upon what he did. At the cross, he didn't say try harder. He said to tell us die. It is finished. He wants to give good gifts to his children. And it's his engagement in your life that is the greatest gift of all. So lean into it. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for never leaving us alone. God, honestly, I don't like teaching on stuff like this. It would be a lot easier just to feel good about everything. But I just don't think that's what we need. I think we need a true and genuine encounter with you that really does radically change our lives so that we can experience joy and grace in our homes, in our families, in our community, in our society, and in this church. Father, I want you to pour out your spirit on us so that you can change Ananias and Sapphira's into Barnabas's. Give us a true and authentic Holy Spirit encounter with you. Make us more like you. 
And God, would you build your church and your kingdom through us? In Jesus' name, amen.